You are listening to Uncanny Landscapes, Excursions into the Otherwise, with Justin Hopper. And we, we animate the, the supposedly inanimate world around us all the time. Um, and so, so thinking about these things, I think everyone thinks about these things. It's just, you know, getting back to that initial way of working that I told you about, I just sort of circle around the same thing over and over and over and expand and deepen it. Because that's, in a sense, that's my job, um, or, what, or what I've told myself my job is. And like I said, I, I'm, I'm doubtless other people um, do these things. I think it's, it's interesting, you, you know, the fact that I wrote a book or made a piece of music about a thing is, is in a sense, that's, for me, a way of dealing with the everyday. Welcome to Uncanny Landscapes, a series of conversations around and excursions into landscapes of the otherwise. You've just heard today's guest, writer, artist, and musician Richard Skelton, talking about the everyday. The music is from Richard's recent collection, Four Workings. More from him very soon. And I'm your host, Justin Hopper. I am speaking to you from a small room in Dedham Vale, an area of outstanding uncanny beauty in the east of England. It is my goal through the conversations and accompanying detritus that comprise these podcasts to determine and slowly, poorly, define their subject matter. They are concerned with a wide variety of interpretations of the uncanny landscape, which is, for reasons that will become obvious, the experience with which we so often encounter our surroundings. I've been thinking about a poem. It's a piece by the great 17th century haiku poet known as Basha, which I'm sure I first encountered through Don Wentworth, the great writer and, through his Lilliput Press, modern-day champion of the short-form poem. In translation by Robert Haas, Basho's poem reads, First day of spring, I keep thinking about the end of autumn. It's about looking back, confusing the seasons and reimagining, and nostalgia for that which was. And it's also the supreme and very human nature of worry, denying the beauty of a spring day by knowing that, inexorably, each blossom and ray will dwindle to winter. What is more human than dividing our lives into time is confusing and refusing that time. But it works both ways. Our first days of spring are, for our ancestors, the end of autumn. We carry their days with us, and through us they can live again, just as we shall. Perhaps, in a very tangential way, Basho is saying to look at the lines on our hand as it brushes the freshness of a blossom, saying, be a good ancestor. Richard Skelton is a writer, an artist, and a musician. He is co-founder and co-editor of Corbelstone Press, along with his wife, the celebrated poet, artist, and publisher, Autumn Richardson. Corbelstone publishes their own work, as well as that of both living and historical writers interested in landscape, the natural world, and the human-non-human relationship. Richard is prolific in all his works, 
books include Landings, Beyond the Fell Wall, and the recent Stranger in the Mask of a Deer. Recordings include The Complete Landings, Border Ballads, and Last Glacial Maximum. Ian Autumn's video and installation artwork has been exhibited widely. Richard and Autumn have lived and worked in his native northwestern England, in the west of Ireland, and now in Scotland, as he describes. Richard Skelton. Autumn and I live in a little village called Newcastleton, which is um, on the Scottish border. Now, literally, so we're on the, the Scottish side of, of, the, of the border, and we're about a mile, two miles from um, a little stream called the Kershuk Burn, and that separates England from, from Scotland. And um, we, we moved to Scotland about five years ago after having lived in the north of England for many years. And we, we just were, it wasn't working where we were in, in, in the Lake District. Um, we can get into that, but it's just, it, it felt really difficult to be there as, a, as an artist and as a, somebody interested in environmentalism and the natural world and to, to, to see the way that the landscape of, of Cumbria was, was so um, denuded and empty of, of wild things. Um, and for some reason, we thought that Scotland might be different. We, we kind of, we, we read that, that Scotland was more environmentally progressive, that it was obviously politically more progressive. There was, it was about the time of the referendum. And um, just this, this need to, to shake things up and do something different. Weirdly, what, what kind of sold it to us is we drove down to, to see it and we, dr we drove over a, a patch of moorland between here and a, and a town called Langham. And we saw this ghostly gray-white bird fly across the, the path of the car and into the distance. And we both looked at each other and said, was that a fucking hen harrier? Yes, it was. And we just could not believe it. It was just like, and because we're, we're those kind of folk, we took that as a great sign that we should be here because they're, they're an incredibly rare bird. And we didn't know this at that time, but this particular moorland is a, is a kind of um, one of the last preserves of, of, this, uh, of this species. And people f flock here from, from miles around to see them. We just we just kind of were driving and, and saw it and it was just incredible. So yeah, we 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 took that as a sign. We took the cottage. That was that was back in 2017, and we've, we've been here ever since. And for us, it's kind of like a process of you, you you bed in, you kind of live your life in a place. You kind of it's not about sort of doing a a project or anything like that. It's just about living your life being in a place, trying to, to become part of that community and then slowly kind of circling around the same locus, gradually and gradually broader and deeper in that circling and trying to, to, to find a way in that, that, that is meaningful to us. Um, and yeah, and then suddenly the, the, the days turn into months, turn into years, and it's now... 2021, four years later, um, 
and I, th- I think we're, we're sort of ready for something new. Do you feel as though you've accomplished this idea of uh, embedding yourself into a community? Because, of course, it's not all that frequent that new blood can come into some of these kinds of places. Have you, have you found your way into that sort of community aspect of things there? And, and, and actually, importantly, let me add a second part to that, which is, does that, does that um, sort of sense of community affect or impact or have anything to do with what you make, which often seems very sort of removed temporally, even regardless of anything else? Everything stems from from living your life. It's like it's like the, the the work that we do is not separate from that. But it's it's not community oriented in the same way that a lot of artists who work with communities is, is tangibly embedded in that way. Ours isn't. We're very much doing our own um, work and research. But but to get back to your your original observation, absolutely, it's it's next to impossible to be to become part of a of a community and i think that doesn't really it doesn't really matter whether it's a rural community or or an urban one i think you you face the same kind of challenges um one of the reasons that we move around so much is that we're looking for that sense of community and maybe maybe we're, we're too idealistic in that sense and that we think that there'll be somewhere that we go to that welcomes us and makes us feel at home. Um, and it's a difficult thing. The people here are lovely and they're incredibly um, nice and generous. But yeah, it's difficult to, to break through that initial civility. Um, and we've been in places where there isn't even that, where you, you're, you're just an incomer. And they, and they look at you strangely, and if there was another side of the road, then they'd cross it. Yeah, and you maybe you've experienced this too. Autumn is Canadian, so she has a, a funny accent, <laughs> as it, as it, you know. So you're a curiosity, and maybe that garners yeah. a certain level of, of interest initially, but that that soon wears thin. And then it's fundamentally about about what you do. And how you make your life, and and how you communicate that to other people, and then what they do, and a lot of a lot of people, you know, they don't have the same interests. I think one of the things that really struck us is is odd after we we've done this for sort of ten years now is that, um, you know, I, I don't mean this in any kind of pejorative way. People who live in the countryside don't nece- they're not necessarily interested in the countryside. It's just where they live. So if if you're a farmer and you make your life out of working the fields and it's and it's subsistence it engenders a certain kind of mindset mm. and i know there are there are there are you know it's difficult to talk about any profession um and and make these generalizations and we've met some farmers who have very interesting things to say and, and are very switched on to environmental um concerns and are doing incredible stuff with their mm. land um but the the kind of overriding sense that that you get as a as a, as an incomer, somebody who's not been been brought up on that land, it it seems quite a a problematic relationship between the human and and the environment and the human and the natural world. It's it's fundamentally extractive. It's it's 
trying to make your subsistence from a land and from a, uh, a natural world that is in, in, in many instances inimical to that idea. And so the, the land is, is often very poor. Um, you've got to plow so much additional nutrients into it. You've got to dip the sheep. You've got to um, give them all these supplements. It's such a difficult way of life, and, and no wonder there are subsidies to help farming mm. folk. You know, it's it's such a hard life, I think, and so it's difficult to sort of square that with other issues and other ways of relating to the land. It's it's maybe unfair to think about these things in a critical way. That that's really quite interesting, especially because what you're doing is so profoundly a part of seeing yourself and ourselves as part of something goes on over, you know, like you say in this new book, 600 generations. There must be, uh, you know, not to bring this word into everything, but there must be an uncanny kind of relationship where you enter into a location like this and begin looking at it from that point of view, surrounded by people who are trying to get through day by day, I can sort of see how actually one plays off of the other. I think so, yeah. Um, I mean, and this is the thing, we, we all hold, I think, these, these complexities and, and paradoxes, you know, in, in our heads. I don't necessarily believe in this idea that, you know, I'm the, I'm the only person here thinking about these things and that the, and that the guy... Um, digging the drainage ditch or mending the stone wall isn't also having these thoughts. It's just that I'm the one expressing them um, or dealing with them more, more tangibly. Um, the strange thing is, you know, we lived on a, on a farm in Cumbria and we had stone, wall, stone walls in our back garden. And one of the things that I did is I rebuilt a stone wall after it had been um, after a particularly heavy storm had kind of blown it down and the, the the physical labor and the act of kind of trying to reconstitute that stone wall um i found a really profoundly mind-altering and moving experience again I, it's not that i'm trying to romanticize the, the, the act of stone wall building or to say that 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 is the 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 thing that I took away from that, the thing I took away is that I mended a stone wall that needed mending in the garden. Um, but in terms of me thinking about that and how it affected the way that I wrote about, I, I did a book about stone walls called Beyond the Fell Wall back in 2015. And so it, it affected the way I thought about that and the way that I started to begin to, begin to think about the sentience of stones. And, you, you know, on a on a kind of trivial level, you know, a stone can appear to like jump out of a wall and land on the floor. So you can just think about stones in terms of that stone's a bit of a fucker. Why did it do that? Um, and we we animate the the supposedly inanimate world around us all the time. Um, and so so thinking about these things, I think everyone thinks about these things. It's just you know, getting back to that initial way of working that I told you about. I just sort of circle around the same thing over and over and over and expand and deepen it because that's, in a sense, that's my job. 
um, or what or what I've told myself my job is, and and it's it's I think just part part of being in the world. You, you just think about the things that you do every day and reflect upon them. For me, at least, they be, certain things begin to resonate. And when I notice a resonance, I, I I go back to it and 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 try and and look harder at that particular thing or listen more deeply to see or hear what's going on. Um, like I said, I, I'm, I'm doubtless other people um, do these things. I think it's it's interesting, you, you know, the fact that I wrote a book or made a piece of music about a thing is, in a sense, that's for me, a way of dealing with the everyday. I've got a terrible memory. I don't know about you, but as I get older and older, you know, I can watch a film that I watched six months ago and be startled by the ending because I've just forgotten it. Um, and so for me, writing things down is a way of holding on to things that that it, it's it's about salvage. It's about each recording, each each bit of writing is about fixing something that otherwise would just sort of flow away in that in that kind of river of the everyday. Um, and so, you know, in, in a sense, what, what I've done is just sort of collect more stones than other people. So many of these projects have either as their main thrust or as a side note even, or somewhere in between, have these lists and um, almost sort of grammatical breakdowns of the linguistic relationship to a place. I think it would be really interesting for me if you could just think for a moment out loud about how that relates to this idea of building yourself, of writing things down for yourself. I mean, are you sort of intermixing your, your own note-taking in a way with all the other note-taking that has come before to build something out of that? Are you sort of linguistically generating a landscape by uh, uh, through these words? It, I'm putting words, I'm, I'm inventing things. Do you think you can talk about that for a moment? Sure. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, the the, the metaphor that I use is is a moraine, mm. which for people who aren't into glaciology is the the kind of gathered rubble that is scoured from a landscape by a by a glacier. So you imagine it kind of like as a, as a just this this huge weight scraping the landscape and and gathering all this substrate and and, and topsoil and, and and all the rest of it and dumping it somewhere as it moves through the landscape and there's a there's a textual moraine there's there's a there are books and books and books 
and even though each book in itself is is discrete and self-defined and coherent um we don't tend to experience them like that we for me at least it's rare for me to read a book from cover to cover or to experience it in a linear fashion mm. um i what i love bookshops and, and and often how i acquire a book in a bookshop is i'll open a book at a random page and just look at a a, a little section of it and if if something there interests me i'll flip it to another page I, you know i don't look at the table of contents or the index i'm just interested in 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 the kind of the randomness of, of encounter with that text and if something there sparks my interest then that book is going in in the bag and i'm gonna i'm gonna take it home and look at it but even then i might i might still not read that book from cover to cover it's just i don't necessarily navigate my way through through text in that way so in in my head there are lots of books where there are connections between fragments that i've somehow managed to retain in in, in the memory and they speak to each other and they overlap and they intermingle right um and so as a process um you know i keep a notebook and anything that i find interesting in a text i'll write down and then that 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 fragment from that book is then teased away from the artifact itself and it goes in, into my own little moraine that i'm that i'm kind of accumulating. Yeah. I, I i took this to a to a different level with um this ongoing series of of texts that i've been working on called the cult revived where I thought, well, how can I more realistically or, or more dramatically engage with this idea of a moraine? And so I, I took all these texts, typed them out, put them into a Word document, and then fed all that into a computer randomizer that just basically mashed everything up so that there wasn't any semblance of the original word order. Or you know, so, so words from one book would be rubbing up against words from another book. And what I found really fascinating is that the, these chance collisions of different meanings. I just found incredibly potent. And so um, the, the work became a, a process of trying to re, re-synthesize and, and reimagine, in a sense, the kind of meta-text that, that all these texts are pointing to. Um, and in, in a way, pushing them all together and then and reassembling them and reorienting them towards each other. Something new comes out of them. It was nevertheless part of of their kind of hive mind, if you if you if you if you like, or yeah, kind of overall textuality, and, and that kind of thing fascinated me, you know. And 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 like you know, like your metaphor, it it is the way you know when you're dealing with sort of a relationship to place. Um, part of that this language is is what we've got to go on in terms of that human relationship to place in a way, right? We've got um, the two things we have, sorry, that we've got consistently are texts going back a thousand years on this island, and we've got archaeology. And it often seems to me that there's a um, that there's a really sort of symbiotic relationship between what you do artistically and what you do textually with archaeological ideas and you know the, this idea of of digging down and taking these pieces and and almost sort of curating a past out of it 
you were talking about my one of my latest books, A Flint Incentive, which is kind of like a collected works for the past um, five years. And I, I write about that in the, in the end note. Um, it, it's a kind of literary archaeology. It's so, so, the, so the, the sort of concept in a sense is, you know, when archaeologists discover, say, um, skeletal matter, they already have a blueprint. Okay, this is a tibia. So I know, I know on, on the reconstruction table, I know where this particular bone is, is going to be situated. And this is a fragment of skull, so I'm going to put it here. Um, but I, I wanted to follow an idea that there's something that we're looking for that we don't know what the form, the original form was. And so the process of trying to recover and, and, and reconstitute that form is bound to failure. But in that failure, there are exciting revelations to be had because we so the process is one of endless reassembly and, and that's what I've been doing since my my first book landings back in 2009 is taking texts and continually re reworking them and repositioning them and part of that is not archaeological it's about seeing these processes at work in the landscape itself so nothing is ever discarded in the landscape it's just moved from one place to another it's reworked it's reused by agencies within the land itself and so how can i apply that to my to my own text well i can i can i can do that really easily i can take bits of my text and then place them in different um on different pages of the book i can i can bring things forward and move things around and 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 see what happens when you read things over and over in different contexts and, and the meanings that they take on and the meanings that they lose and trying to explore this idea of, of meaning not being fixed but being constantly in flux and there's this kind of tension where you have a book which is a fixed textual artifact and yet how can you how can i try and embody that flux that kind of dynamic that's constantly at work in landscape and you know often people think about landscape as a fixed thing and that where the people moving through it where the agents but actually the more you embed yourself in a landscape you go on a daily walk you see the role of the seasons you see the different interactions that are, that are going on everything's at flux everything's moving everything's changing and so why are our texts fixed and i i, I delved a little bit into this in, in my phd you know we had a, an oral culture that wasn't fixed and the, in the telling of, of narratives and the communicating of, of information, it's constantly kept alive and constantly reworked. Much of that is lost. And the thing that we prize in, in, in literary culture is the fixed ossified artifact, the kind of moment of genius that has been preserved for posterity. And in a sense, that's a sham. It's not something that's real. It's not something that we that we have in 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 our day to day lives. There's no moments of of perfection, and yet at the same time, there's this desperate desire, at least on my part, if I think of a of a line that that resonates as I'm on my daily walk, then I want to preserve it. And you know, we live in a culture where people have phones and they take a thousand photographs a day, and there's there's this there's this deep desire that we all have to document and, and record and archive. Um, does it 
does it stem from the technology or is it is it a deeper human desire to to have this continuance this this kind of salvage against the flow of of, of time It relates to this idea of boundaries that has been very prevalent in, well, I mean, I think in, in a lot of what you've done, but in the past sort of four, three, four, five years, this idea of boundaries and the word boundaries and, you know, the last glacial maximum and, and boundary songs and uh, um, what's this one I keep forgetting the title of, and then gone, hmm. you know, strikes, these all strike me as, as these, uh, um, pieces about those moments where for one second, everything's sort of static, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, knowing that on either side of that is just this, you know, it, they're teetering moments, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And we kind of live in this vastly teetering moment. Um, and, you know, I, you have these ideas, I think, about life in, in a boundary moment um, and about how we sort of, how we build a relationship with that, how we understand that and how we, you know, in finger quotes, talk about living in this sort of contradictory moment where we're in this very, very small sort of, you know, late 19th century until 50 or 60 years from now, moment of radical change. And we, and we think about that as this, as something brief, as something teetering, as, as something liminal. Um, and yet the only way to understand that is by seeing it as part of something that's 600 generations at the very minimum, you know, that's talking about glacial epochs and, and, deep time and geology and that, that kind of thing. Can you speak a little bit about, um, about this idea of boundaries and all the different meanings that that might have to you and how it comes into play in what, you're, what you've been working on and what perhaps you are working on? Because I, I don't necessarily think about that boundary between the present and the past as necessarily contradictory or, or problematic. I think... I think the thing is we we all hold paradoxes in our heads from, from day to day quite comfortably. So, you know, you, you, a really trivial example, you know, Autumn and I were watching a film last night and there was a really powerful scene and a little voice in my head said, um, wow, that guy can really act. And so you have this, this paradox that you've seen something really compelling and, and authentic, and it's moved you. There's, there's emotion. There's, and yet what you're watching is something entirely contrived and false and pretend. And we have this capacity from, from, from our 
days of infancy you know we're playing with our toys and we know they're toys and we know that we're the the gods of those toys and we can make them move and do all these different things and yet at the same time we invest them with their own sentience and and life and and, and separate um identity and so there's 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 this we're constantly working with paradox and i think in the same way with time the idea that we can be in the moment is so difficult it's i mean it's one of those things it's one of those spiritual things that people try to 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 attain to cut ourselves loose from history from memory from thought or all thought in 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 that sense or instances towards the passage of time um so for for me as 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 i go on my daily walk and i'm i'm looking at at the the flowering of of the may blossom you know i'm saying to myself oh that's new that wasn't here even yesterday you know so there's this constant narrative between the me of now and the me of of um of yesterday and in in my my new book um stranger in the mask of the deer i have this image of me looking down and and seeing my father's hands and that's not a metaphor that's literally as the older i get and the 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 more gnarled my hands become the more they to me resemble my dad's hands and then i have this idea well then if i'm looking at my hands and seeing my dad's hands and he's got the same idea and so on and so on down the long human chain and you go 600 generations and you're back at the in a, in a in an instance you're back at in the ice age and you're back to to hunter gatherers 15,000 years ago um just by looking at my own hands so it's not that it's not it's not that we can in any way tangibly conceive what it was like 15,000 years ago but in it also in a very real sense by looking at my own hands i'm looking back at at, at that at that period of time in that in that kind of familial ancestral genetic sense that we all have when we look at ourselves we're all the kind of accumulation of of our pasts and our ancestors leading to this moment um and then you, you have the same thing with landscape you know the the landscape didn't arrive here yesterday it's the accumulation of pasts and pasts and pasts going going way back to supercontinents going back to to explosions out of the out of stars going back to to the big bangs and and who knows what so everything everything is contingent on a, on a previous moment that was contingent on a previous moment etc cetera, etc cetera, by ad infinitum and so for me it's just a, a process of well how far back do you look and and, and that's the first line of, of the of the book you know where do i begin how well and the, and then the answer to that well how far back can you can you see so it's about acts of of imaginative seeing um and i think we all do these things it's part and parcel of of being creatures of time you know we we all are deeply engaged in our own everyday realities but those are then accumulative and so we when i go on on, on my daily walk there are you know and i look at the 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 path ahead of me the path ahead of me is also the path of into the past it's the path that i've walked day after day for the past 4 years um 
you know, so so all these things are imbricated in each other. They they all dovetail together. It's it's so difficult to 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 disentangle them, and that and that's why it's interesting that language is so fixed on division and boundary, and 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 every word that we have is is a word that's defined by not being another word in in terms of its meaning, and yet also simultaneously every word that we have is defined by also its connection and contingency on other words. We can't define a word without words themselves. And so you look in the dictionary and you move from one word to another, and it's just a, it's just a, a trail of words that will eventually lead back to the original word. So everything is, is contingent on, on everything else. And that was one of the things that I, I found really fascinating when we think about, you know, well, who are we as as human beings, we, we, we see ourselves as discrete, well-defined, not, not just in terms of our own humanity, but as, as individual selves and individual identities. And I wanted to explore this idea that actually that kind of sense of identity is, is, a, is a construct. And, there are other, and when you start to tease away at, at, at the, the sense of identity that we each have, it is difficult to then to to find those boundaries and, and those demarcations. You know, when you look at a hill, where does the hill start, and where 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 does it end? What is it that that, that constitutes the hill itself? When you look inside it, when you see the water running through it, and and the the, the plants and animals that live on it, it's it's difficult to disentangle that, and yet we have this really small word to to somehow encompass it define it it doesn't really do it justice but in that same section that begin section where you're talking about looking down and uh, uh, at your hands and and looking talking about 600 generations you're also talking about or maybe it's the next section but you're also talking about seeing the end of the field kind of seeing um seeing where that uh that place that probably you know that has a name where that ends and the fact that of course if you get as you get closer that extends itself further and further so in a way where where you know i'm where i'm thinking about boundaries in fact what you're talking about is the um is the irony of boundaries Hmm. is the idea that that there's an ironic level to any of these concepts of linguistic or or uh, textual or or even sonic um and we'll we'll talk about I, I know we're we're going a little bit late but um but we'll talk about music in a minute but <laughs> the idea of those boundaries is is if i get this right you're kind of saying that um that actually we as human beings already know both that there is no such thing and that we kind of need to pretend there is yeah again it's it's a, it's a paradox isn't it it's um we we need these definitions just in order to function you know we we need to be able to in, t- in terms of you know basic communication we need to be able to identify and delineate things times events etc but when you circle around all those things again and again, they start to lose their focus and they, they start to lose their um, 
their discreteness, their, 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 nothing exists in, in isolation. You know, it's not a, it's not a, a revelatory statement to say that, but we, we often like to conceptualize things in that way in order that, so that we can get a, get a handle on things and get a, get a grip on, on reality because everything is connected. Um, and if we, you know, there's there's a part of the poem where I where I, I I say that I say how to, you know, how can I make my way through the world when when everything is is connected and contingent on 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 everything else, but how to make my way through the world? I said, when each step impinges upon another, when each action displaces or absorbs another, when everything must eat and be eaten. And how to hold that knowledge in the mind and not be paralyzed by horror, fear, anxiety. Did I take from you unnecessarily? Did I not give of myself when it was my time? And so, and so it's, it's about the idea that we, that we as individuals, we're, we're part of a community of, of living and supposedly non-living things. And that we have, we have obligations. Uh, and that we somehow seem to have forgotten that, and part of the of where we've got to as as a species and what we've done to the planet is by looking the other way to towards those obligations. We we've we've put them in a in a, in a blind um, part of our vision, and so that so that we can do the things that we want to do in in order to to. I guess it, to to advance ourselves, if that's the the way that we see it. Um, and so, it, part of what I was wanting to do with the book was to try and sort of resituate ourselves within the community of of living and, and non living things, of animate and supposedly inanimate um, things, and to ask the question: Well, how do you orient yourselves in in that world? And it's difficult and it's full of, uh, for me, full of anxiety and fear and horror, because if everything is equally important, then everything I do has, in, every single thing that I do has, in, has incredible ramifications. How to, how to square that with yourself, you know, how to, you know, I would, I would think about this often as not when I would go out in, uh, on a walk you know how many how many things have I trodden underfoot that I didn't even know existed? How many birds have I scared off the nest that won't return in time for the for the eggs to hatch, or have scared into the path of a predator? You know every mm. everything that that I do has an impact, um, and because of the kind of person I am, I dwell on the negative impacts of of, of my presence in the natural world, <laughs> and you know a, a lot of um, what I do in in my writing is reflect on that, and there's there's a there's a poem that I wrote in in my first book, Landings, called um, Cuckoo. You know, it's just it's just about um, this idea that we have this really superinflated sense of our own importance, and and that we have the we have the 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 right to to do what we want. And just this voice that comes, comes back to me from the landscape, you know, the moor turns its back, disowns me, 
you come here, but we don't need you. Be gone, cuckoo. And so for those that don't know, the cuckoo is the bird that lays its nest in, in other birds, uh, sorry, lays its egg in other birds' nests. And then when the cuckoo chick hatches, it then flips the other eggs out of the, the nest so that it is the sole recipient of the, of the foster parent's attention. And so that being kind of metaphor for the, for the way that we, we cuckoo ourselves in, into the landscape, and the way that we are the, the, the pinnacle of the, of the hierarchical pyramid that we see is, is of this, you know, this antiquated notion of the great chain of being with, with humanity at the, at, the, at the apex. And, you know, just, just thinking about other ways of being in the world where, where we can acknowledge that we're, we're part of a, of a community and that we have obligations and how, how, how do we address that in the, in the modern world? A difficult thing, I don't have the answers. So we, we met in 2008, uh, that's Autumn Richardson, um, my wife and I, and we, um, it's fair to say that without her um, critical eye and support and generosity and guidance, I wouldn't have published my first book in 2009. You know, I, I sent her the um manuscript for it and she she helped me shape it into a book and she sent me some of her poetry and i thought it was incredible and i said i i want to publish this and the first thing that we actually made as as cobblestone press was a little pamphlet of her poetry that was an addition of one that i made to her made for her as a gift I guess we then thought, well, if we can do this and share this between us, then maybe we can, we can share it with other people. And so, you know, we we just tentatively thought, well, you know, we can we can we can publish each other's work. Let's let's form a press. Let's um, let's do this. And that was two thousand and nine. We we published. Typography of the Shore, which was a collaborative um, sequence of poems that we that we wrote about a specific location. Um, but even in those early days, even before maybe we'd we'd published that, we always wanted to start a journal and to publish the work of other people whose whose writing we admired, but also that we we wanted to. Um, to really make a place for um, works that we felt were long lost and, and overlooked and forgotten about. Um, 
you know, as I sort of hinted at earlier, you know, we love going in, in bookshops, secondhand bookshops, finding old books, reading works by people that no one remembers, um, or at least that a lot of people haven't read in a long time and whose work nevertheless feels prescient or feels vital, especially if it speaks to the, to the current moment. And I, I think it's a, it's a unique thing in as much as what we're, what we're about is trying to celebrate and focus intently and with a, with a, a real keenness of purpose on the other than human. Um, you know, there, there, there are avenues for people to write about their own relationship with the, with the natural world. And inevitably, you know, you can't write about the natural world without it being filtered through your own imagination and through your own experience. But we're really interested in, in work that focuses on everything but ourselves, because it, 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 it feels like a, a necessary to, to redress the balance, to, to bring the other than human into focus. Um, and, you know, when you start looking at a, a really ancient texts, there's, there's such a, a deep embedded sense of being in the natural world and being in, uh, and, and, and the other than human figuring and factoring in, in human life in a way uh, that we've perhaps discarded. So I'm talking about mythological texts, folkloric texts, um, spiritual texts, that things that speak to our being in the world with, um, with animals and plants. Um, and them having a really significant um, um, voice, for want of a better word, you know. And so, you know, part of the joy of, of, of editing the journal twice a year is delving deeply into, um, into this old work and finding things that we'd never, you know, you follow this wonderful breadcrumb trail of, of, of sources and, and find some incredible ancient you know, text from from India or from um, Australia or, or South America. And it feels so alive and, and, and vivid and arresting. There's just this incredible desire to share it. You know, this is not to say that these things are, are, are without their problems. You know, that it's a difficult thing to negotiate. I'm sure you've come across this. You you read some works by writers over a hundred years ago, and some of them have less than acceptable ideas about the world and and our place within it. You know, we're we're not wholesale kind of um, celebrating writing of the past, and you know this weighs heavily upon the conscience. You know, it's it's in being selective. Are we are we just sort of shining a very narrow? light on on a on a very small aspect of, of past culture you know i did a i did a book called limnology and one of the things that i did was i gathered together a thousand words for water you know there's there's so many words that that were pejorative about, about um you know about about women for example a word used to describe a, a river was also used to describe a 
you know, a woman who talked too much or a woman who was of easy virtue, but it's, it's pretty disgusting. Um, and so I kind of I kind of ran into that headlong. You know, there's there's no way of getting around that. The, you know, culture is 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 a motley kind of display. And I think the thing that we try to do is focus on what we can celebrate. Um, and I know this this kind of runs um, contrary to the the, the kind of strand of eco-poetic um, writing of recent years, which feels it, the, the necessity of, of acknowledging the, the negative um, impact that, that humanity has on the, on the natural landscape. I think for us, that's a given. What, what we're interested in doing is carving out a space for the natural landscape for it to be celebrated. And in so doing, if we can then in that celebration um, engender a sense of the, of the, of the, of the, of the necessity of, of saving and protecting and finding joy and wonder in, 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 in the natural world, then, then that's our job done. Thank you for listening to Uncanny Landscapes. We'll be back soon with the next installment. My guest was Richard Skelton, who also made today's music from his album Four Workings. Links to Richard's book and other works are available in the podcast info, or can be found through corbelstonepress.com. The title theme is by the Belbury Polly. The Uncanny Landscapes icon is by Stefan Musgrove, Firebrand Creative. Additional special thanks to Lucy Greaves. I'm Justin Hopper. You can contact me via Twitter at Old Weird Albion and find links to everything I've just mentioned on the Uncanny Landscapes site, uncannylandscapes.podbean.com. More installments coming soon. Follow, subscribe, or rate the podcast if that's an option, or keep a lookout on the wires. And if you've enjoyed this and other episodes, please share this podcast with a like-minded friend. Just one will do. We're building a conversation here, not an empire. Until next time, I leave you with the piece Exit from the album The Hollows by Richard Skelton. <laughs>